0: Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway.
1: And I'm Joe Weisenthal.
0: Joe, we like to talk about debt, don't we?
1: We do. Uh, remember we did uh, uh, last fall, we had our uh, Odd Lots live performance, I guess, or live episode, and uh, we had a whole section all about the nature of debt, sovereign debt, sovereign debt restructuring, things like that. Definitely uh, one, of our, one of our go-to topics.
0: Yes. And one of the reasons why I find debt quite fascinating, and you sort of touched on it just there, is because there's almost like a moral veneer on debt. Like the issue of who owes what and to whom is almost a moral one.
1: I've totally noticed this and I totally agree. I mean, there was a story that I tweeted out from Bloomberg a couple weeks ago about how um, you know, StubHub, it's where you could buy tickets for like concerts and oh, yeah, games and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And they had this thing on there, they were like partnering with some company so that if tickets were too expensive for you, you could borrow money to buy them. And people just have such <laughs> a visceral reaction. They're like, oh, this is terrible. This is outrageous. And like, I guess kind of, but it's so interesting. Like nothing makes people more upset in the financial sphere than the perception that someone is... Taking out debt in an unsustainable or uh, way or for a reason that doesn't make total sense, like maybe like buying a house or something. They just get people have such strong views on debt.
0: Totally, it's a hot button topic, and this is one of the reasons why debt restructurings are so fascinating because it's just one giant argument over how to work out the debt and whether the country that assumed all that debt deserves to get away with it, um, as a lot of people think, but. There is one particular notion of debt that is even more interesting from a moral perspective than all others. Do you know what it is?
1: Uh, tell me what it is.
0: Odious debt.
1: Ah. So this is, well, What define odious debt, because I've seen this for a long time, but I'm not sure if I actually know the proper definition.
0: Okay. well, it's something that has been mentioned on our podcast, I think, a couple times before now, but we've never really gone into it in detail. But the first thing to know about odious debt is it's a concept that really only exists in the minds of lawyers and academics. It doesn't really exist in the real world. But what it is as a concept is the notion that if a government issued a bunch of debt and the government did that without the consent of the people and did it without actually benefiting the people, then the new government shouldn't necessarily be responsible for that debt. And you can imagine that the scenario where that would most likely apply is something like where you have a dictator or a despot that takes a bunch of debt and uses it to terrorize his or her population. And then eventually, you know, they get overthrown. There's a new government. Should the people that suffered under the previous regime have to pay back the debt that the dictator actually borrowed?
1: Right. It's a great question. And of course, incredibly complicated. And automatically, you could imagine that the question of whether debtors debt is odious or not uh, would be Very subjective and open to interpretation, but fundamentally, paying off a past debt involves an imposition on real resources of a country. That's less money that can go to domestic needs, social services, rebuilding after a war, uh, things like that. So, while on the one hand you might say a a nation's debt is a nation's debt, uh, the question about what is what is realistic to impose on the new population, on the new government, in terms of damages and uh, obligation to pay, there's a major uh, moral dimension.
0: Absolutely. And I mentioned uh, at the beginning of that definition that odious debt is really just an idea. It doesn't exist in the real world. But what we're going to talk about today is the closest we ever got to odious debt actually being enacted as some sort of Hmm. legal precedent. Uh, The world did get very close to it. And we're going to find out exactly how close and why it didn't really materialize as a concept. And we're going to do it through what was really one of the most interesting debt restructurings of all time.
1: Great. I can't wait for this one.
0: All right. So I'm really happy to say our guest for this episode is a previous Odd Lots guest, Simon Henriksson, a PhD student at the London School of Economics, has written a fantastic book paper about Iraq's debt restructuring and he's going to walk us through it Simon it's great to have you on thanks for having me so Simon uh first of all it's a it is really a fantastic paper and uh, it's available on the LSE website so everyone can go and read it uh, hopefully after the podcast but it's really fascinating because It's almost like people don't remember this chapter of Iraq's history, I guess because it gets superseded so much by multiple wars and, um, you know, a lot of terrible things happening within its borders. But at one point, Iraq was the most indebted country in the world.
2: Correct. At the eve of the U.S. invasion in 2003, Iraq was so indebted that it had more than five times its GDP in national debt. Now, this story is very long and has a bunch of different interesting topics, everything from, as you mentioned, odious debts, where uh, it was fairly close to being enshrined in the doctrine of international law. It had some powerful backers, but it also has all the all the things that make for a fascinating financial story. So, one is that You didn't really know who actually was owed a lot of the debt. Some of the debt was political. Some of the debt was owed through a variety of shady or illegal holdings. It included various national intelligence agencies and goes all the way back to the early 1980s. So it is sort of a plethora of things coming together in what I would argue is probably one of the few successful things that happened in Iraq in the post-invasion reconstruction, which is why it sort of often gets overlooked, because so many other disastrous and uh, terrible things happened, whereas this sort of flew under the radar.
1: So before we obviously get to any talk of how it was restructured, let's talk about how the debt in was incurred, as you point out in your paper, in 1979. It's still at that point due to the country's tremendous oil reserves and so forth. It was actually a net creditor to the rest of the world, so it didn't have any uh, net sovereign debt. And then, as you point out later, the debt uh, by on the eve of the invasion was several multiples of its GDP. How did the debt start to get built up, and who are the uh, original lenders to it? Why and why did why did they need this debt.
2: Yeah, so if we go back to the 1970s, this is really where at least some of the current political discussions and wars originate. So it was a time in which economic growth was actually fairly robust. Iraq came out of the 1970s with double-digit growth rates after the nationalization of the Iraqi Petroleum Company. You had oil, which uh, set new highs in terms of price, and Iraq came out in 1979 and was a net creditor to the world. So, their foreign exchange reserves was somewhere around 35 billion, which is uh, almost two thirds of its GDP. And it's in that context that Saddam Hussein takes over and starts his his multi-decade reign. So, it actually starts from a position of being a net creditor to the world, obviously. In the geopolitical sphere, this is also a time when the rest of the Middle East undergoes tremendous change. The 1979 uh, Iran Revolution, which ends up with the with the Tehran hostage crisis of the U.S. Embassy, means that Iran is not favorably favorably seen as, by the rest of the world. And Saddam starts this conflict. In a in a sense in which he has backing from almost all of the geopolitical world, anything from the Soviets to the U.S. to Europe, and uh, it's really in the context of the eight-year war between Iran and Iraq that the entire debt is is raised or funded. All of the debt is political war debt, and comes from couple of different sources, which can all sort of be described as political backing for Iraq's war. So you have, if we try to break it down into into three buckets, you have the rest of the Middle East, the GCC country, the Gulf countries, who provide backing to Iraq because they favor Iraq. They don't want Iran to uh, become the Middle Eastern hegemon. And some of these loans or grants are given to simply just uh, have Iraq buy weapons import for the for the war now the grants or loans, and the reason i 'm not just calling them loans is that Iraq consider these things grants at the time they don 't think they 're loans they just think they're to help them back, whereas the rest of the countries, especially Saudi and Kuwait, consider them loans, and there is uh, going to be a debate about that later. The other one is simply backing from Other governments, what we today would call OECD and ends up being restructured in the Paris Club, which is the U.S. or Europe, they uh, both send direct money. They also send personnel and weapons to help Iraq fight the war. And then there is the murky, unknown loans that are sort of shrouded in mystery, which we don't really know what comes from. So the best example is a loan that was given from BNL b l at the time of the 1980s was a Italian-owned state bank and it gave uh, almost $2 billion in loans to Iraq through a small branch in Atlanta. Now, why would an Italian bank, state-owned bank, give big loans to Iraq through its Atlanta branch? Well, the loans were underwritten by the Department of Agriculture and in the 1990s, it turned out that the Department of Agriculture Corporation, those loan subsidies were actually heavily influenced by the CIA. There's a, a, a long story about that. It ended up being called Iraq Gate at the time in the 1990s. But all of these loans, whether they were officially sanctioned or they came sort of by way of corporate quasi-government loans, all of it means that Iraq ends up taking on enormous debt in the 1980s and actually goes from being a, a net creditor to having a, a debt-to-GDP ratio of, of over 250%. At the same time, obviously, it goes to being a war economy. And the numerator and the denominator both go in the opposite direction. So Iraq, from having double-digit growth in the 70s, ends up having a negative growth all through the 80s and uses all of its money on on, on the war effort. So it, it's in that context that it goes from being a big net creditor to being a very, very indebted country. So Iraq
0: basically has the goodwill of numerous actors in the Middle East, as well as international actors like the US, like the UK. And it's basically fighting a proxy war against Iran. And these countries and actors are willing to fund it. And that starts the cycle of debt accumulation. But then at the end of the war, its economy is also suffering. And so growth is slowing and the debt to GDP ratio really starts to explode at that point. But of course, it still has political goodwill on its side. But then Simon, you wrote that something quite big changes. And that's the point at which the debt actually becomes a problem. What was that trigger point?
2: after the Iran-Iraq war, or really by the time of the end of it, the geopolitical landscape changes. One is obviously that the Soviet loses some of its influence in the world. Another is that Iraq overplays its hand. So uh, it is victorious militarily, but it ends up being uh, a weak country in the end in in the geopolitical sense. And even then, Saddam, after the war, thinks that uh, he has the power to actually be the new big hegemon in the Middle East. So he starts to be more aggressive. Some of the loans that he considered grants from Kuwait, there is a dispute about that in the late 80s, and he uses it as a pretext to invade Kuwait, which ends up being the first Gulf War. At this point, nobody is really on Iraq's side anymore. The geopolitical support That was massive because nobody liked Iran after the hostage crisis has completely evaporated. And not only that, everyone is afraid that after Kuwait, Iraq is going to consider going into Saudi Arabia, which is heavily supported by the West. So Iraq is defeated. And instead of actually being able to service these loans because it can just keep getting money from its backers, it ends up starting to default because the interest payment starts to add up. It needs to have more money for infrastructure. The reconstruction effort is massive after the iran iraq war, and oil exports sort of goes down quite dramatically so it's in that context that after the first Gulf War, the world comes together to sanction Saddam and put on not only sanctions but also uh, war reparations. You have big liabilities that instead of having the opportunity to roll over because it's easy to issue new debt, all of a sudden the geopolitical wind of change means that they need to raise the money by themselves, and there is no way that having a debt-to-GDP ratio of over 300% of which interest rate payment is quite high, the oil exports that they used to actually service the debt goes down because it becomes harder to do trade, and they are hit with sanctions and reparation payments which means that at this point, the default is uh, complete. And by the time that the official sanctions from the UN isolates Iraq from the global economy, default is uh, complete and Iraq sort of stops any payments and withdraws from the global economy. So
1: before we go further, at this point, you know, obviously, in uh, in recent years, we've seen sovereign debt restructurings, and we've seen different players, you know, have different interests, including the prominent uh, role that hedge funds or other private uh, lenders have played in trying to make sure they get paid. At this point, is there much private ownership of Iraqi sovereign debt? Uh, is it in Private hands, or is it largely different states and the CIA-backed debt and you know, sort of political debt, as you called it, in
2: 1991, which is really the height of indebtedness. The total liabilities, or if we start with total debt, you have 18 billion, which is direct debt to OECD-like countries, meaning the West and the U.S. Then you have 50 billion, which is to Gulf states. These are the grants or the loans of which nobody can really agree on what they are. Then there are a bunch of smaller creditors, which are also countries. And then $10 billion, which is commercial debt, which is this sort of quasi-bilateral, you don't really know who it is. But in the sources at the time, the commercial debt also includes a wide variety of trade credits or export credits. This can be loans that small businessmen gave to uh, Iraq or had Leon's on, And they are small, but they will obviously grow over time. But the main money uh, owed here are to bilateral states, whether that being OECD or Gulf countries. And there aren't really any hedge funds involved at the time. Uh, this was way before people started talking about uh, restructuring in, in terms of vulture funds or anything like Argentina. So it, it was primarily war that that was highly political.
0: Simon, you say in the paper that you constructed, um, I think it's the first chart of Iraq's debt to GDP ratio going all the way back to 1979. Is that right? Correct. How did you actually go about doing the research for how much Iraq owed at these various points in time? Because as you point out, it's sort of a tangled web of obligations that they're weaving, right? You have everything from a uh, sovereign creditors like the United States to a guy that you know imported a bunch of frozen chickens into Basra and wants to get paid. So, how did you actually go about accumulating all that data?
2: One of the things when you do a restructuring is that normally you know who is actually owed the money. So, in most sovereign restructurings, the main issue is external debt, which is bonds held at either Euroclear or DTCC. So you actually know who owns the bonds and you can get them together and make an offer or start negotiations. In Iraq, all of the debt was incurred before 1990, which means that they were all loans. They had been delinquent on for a long time and Iraq had been isolated and under a severe bombardment by 2003. So it's actually kind of hard to find out who's actually owed a lot of money. So one of the first things that the IMF and the Treasury did when they came in was to try and get a, a sense of who's actually owed all this money. And I start from taking all of their hard work and say, how much was actually restructured in 2006? So let's assume that you are owed something. Obviously, you want to get paid. The way to get paid is during the restructuring, you come forward and tell them I am owed X and Y. And then we can work our way backwards from there. So I take the approach to start from there and then work my way backwards to try and find out where are these loans actually placed in time. And this is an incorrect sign. So obviously, some of the bigger loans, we know which were uh, where they were from. It's easier when it's corporates or commercial loans because oftentimes there are contracts. If it's handshake deals, which sometimes they are, it's a little bit hard. So what I did was to take all the nominal amounts that were restructured and then work my way backwards to try and place them in time and then see where do they originate, where can we place them. And all of the loans really are uh, coming from the time during the Iran-Iraq war. So It's a matter of trying to place them and then find out what were the original loan amounts, how much were they owed after, what were the interest rates and then try to discount forward.
1: And you describe your work in the paper as uh, having done an oral history of this, because, again, it's so complicated. So what was your process? Who did you go out and talk to to actually sort of reconstruct uh, the whole process?
2: Yeah, so that was step one, trying to find out the debt history of Iraq, because there was really no one who had done a comprehensive study covering all the time from 1979 to 2003. There were some bits, pieces here. Obviously, I borrow from uh, some of the great work that's been done before. But getting to the debt history up until 2003 only got me so far. The second part was to actually look at the restructuring. So the oral history is that I went out and I talked to everyone who were actually involved. So this would be the lawyer's This would be the bankers, the officials who were involved for the U.K., the U.S. governments who actually conducted the negotiations, and then a lot of primary sources. So you have all of the press releases. You have all the negotiation papers. You have all of the restructured and reconciliation documents that you can go see. So a lot of the loans that I found and traced back were actually from documents that were given during the restructuring so that they could get paid. And then try to work backwards. Who were the banks? So the BNL, for example, the CIA linked loan from the 1980s was restructured in 2006 as part of by that time, a BNP paribas claim on Iraq, which had just been a non-performing loans on its book for almost 20 years.
0: Uh, well, let's talk about the restructuring then, um, cause we're, we've been building up to that point. So, uh, I guess in the early 2000s, everyone certainly remembers, um, what happened with the U.S. invading Iraq. Uh, and after that, the, the restructuring really begins in 2003. So, um, how does that process kick off and what were the motivations of actually doing the restructuring?
2: There are a few differing accounts on what the motivations actually were. Now, I would put them broadly in two categories. One was moral or uh, political, and they're sorted together, in that as part of the reconstruction uh, program where the U.S.-led coalition would like to get Iraq rebuilt, obviously there was a big debt overhang, and the government at the time was heavily favoring Market forces, and they wanted Iraq to be part of the global economy again. It's a lot easier if you don't have a lot of outstanding credits that can be attached by various creditors at any time. So they wanted to clear it up so that Iraq could regain entry. That is uh, sort of the political part. The second part was was more moral in the sense that uh, this was they had liberated. Bush and uh, Cheney had liberated Saddam and Iraq from Saddam, and they thought that the debts should not be carried over. So this is where the odious debt part comes in. There are differing accounts as to how big a factor this actually was at the time. And I will say that depending on who you talk to, some people say that it wasn't important at all, and some people will say that it was very important. There were several official statements, so the Treasury Secretary did say that they considered uh, declaring the debt odious, but they wanted it for both moral and political political reasons. So what did they actually do? Well, if we take our mind back to 2003, when they actually tried to make the invasion legal, the first UN resolution actually had very important provision in for the debt restructuring, which was that it immunized all of Iraqi the assets from credit attachment. This is fairly big. And not something that is normally done in sovereign debt restructuring, and it's important because Iraq had lots of oil assets that were abroad, and if all of a sudden creditors started to come out of the woodwork and say, "We want to get paid on our money on our debt," then they could start to attach these oil assets. So it was enshrined into un law that Iraqi assets were immunised from creditor attachment which was sort of the step one and was part of the discussions from even before the invasion. Now, after that, uh, it got a pretty big push from the economic part of uh, the invasion force. So the CPA, the, the provisional government that the US, that the coalition set up, had an economic office of which it had a couple of big projects of which debt restructuring was was one of the main ones. So it was from early on, agreed that there would be a debt restructuring. And you can see, if you go back, Bush, the Treasury Secretary, Snow, they they all talk about this is a priority in the reconstruction of, of Iraq.
1: Okay, so we have the UN statement immunizing domestic energy assets from being seized by creditors. We have the rhetoric about... Uh, wanting some sort of restructuring and uh, some talking about how this debt should be seen as odious and therefore canceled. What was the gap, if any, between the rhetoric that we heard from the Bush administration versus what actually got put into practice in terms of the restructuring, and where did that where did things break down in that respect?
2: I don't know if they really broke down, but they started early. They started early on to, to talk about how do we actually want to do this restructuring? So there are a couple of different ways you can go about a restructuring. Obviously, Iraq had three big creditor groups. One was the Paris Club people. These are the OECD, the developed countries, who are owed money directly. A lot of negotiations start there. Then there was the commercial creditors, which were owed money, and then the bilateral governments, which are all the non-Paris Club, which mainly means in this instance, the Gulf states and China. And the U.S. had enormous political power to put behind pushing for a deal, especially at the Paris Club. So this is where they started. And they went to the Paris Club saying that we want as much debt write-down as is possible. And this is where the context about the time of negotiations is important. So it varies enormously how big haircut government uh, creditors actually take on their sovereign debt so we have stories about as low as less than 20% haircut as was the case in Uruguay to almost 80 which is the case of Argentinian the Argentinian restructuring in 2005 obviously there were things happening after that but just in terms of the haircut that creditors take it was actually during the time more creditor friendly restructurings that were the norm Obviously going out and saying we would like your debt to be restructured at somewhere around eighty to ninety percent haircut was a pretty big ask at a time when creditors actually had a lot of power to say that. So the initial talk is where do we actually go about doing the restructurings and how can we use the political muscle to push it through? This is where you have the the two groups of people who are normally involved in restructurings. So this would be the IMFs and the U.S. Treasuries and the bankers and the lawyers of the world who want to do a normal restructuring where uh, you do either a debt-for-debt swap or a debt-for-cash swap. You do it through the normal channels of negotiation. Or you had the non-standard players, so the White House, the Pentagon, all of the grassroots organizations who say, you know what, all this debt that Iraq has, we want you to declare it odious because it is not moral to pay it at all. The debt was not for the people. It had no benefit. It was for the personal enrichment of Saddam Hussein, and it was really used for a political war in which the citizens of Iraq didn't really play a big role. So it's the clash of those two. and. Both of them came out in the same way in the sense that they wanted the debt write-down to be big, but whether you go through a normal restructuring process or whether you declare the debt odious have two very different outcomes. So there is this internal battle between the groups and, as you might have guessed, the IMF and the Treasuries and the people who are actually involved ends up being on top. And the reason is that they convince everyone else that, one, this is how debt restructuring should work. We don't really want to open the can of worms of starting to declare sovereign debt odious. And we can get a big write down anyway. So they went out and said, you know what, we can probably get 90% haircut. We think that uh, it's not needed to be declared odious. And in the end, the opening gambit from the coalition side at the Paris Club, which is where uh, sovereign debt negotiations are negotiated at the Paris uh, Treasury, the French Treasury in Paris. Our opening gambit is that we're going to say we can get a ninety-five percent haircut. Obviously, it ended up a little bit lower, but uh, the U.S. and the U.K. went pretty hard and said, "You know what? We can we can do it the normal way, and we can get where you want us to be." The other side of that was all of mostly the Europeans, so the Russian and the German and the French who thought that 90, 95% haircut was actually a little bit excessive. They thought 50% is better. And the U.S. was not really a big creditor. So while they had political muscle, they didn't really have much debt. They only had $4 billion. And they end up doing it in, in the, uh, it takes many months, negotiation back and forth. It ends up being agreed at a summit in Chile between Putin and Bush, where Bush has to personally push uh, Putin at three separate meetings at the margins of the summit to actually get a a deal. And the deal they get is fairly harsh on creditors. So they end up with 80% haircut, which comes in three trenches, and they do it in a way that's not actually normal for the Paris Club. So there is this idea about flow treatment and stock reduction. So normally, You take the flow treatment first. Now, this wasn't really an issue for Iraq because they didn't really pay interest on the loans, but you don't really write down the debt until all of the conditions are met. The 80% debt reduction came 30% upfront, and then the IMF got involved over two times to actually help provide a debt sustainability analysis, which by the Europeans at the time were considered a work of fiction because it underscored how much revenue would come from oil, and it was a rigid assumption that didn't change at all. Um, But they ended up taking a a net present value reduction on all of the debt of just under 90%, which uh, by the time is, is far higher than any other sovereign debt restructuring in the last 20 years.
0: Okay, so a haircut of about 90%. How replicable would such a debt restructuring be again, because it seems like this one's fairly unusual in the sense that you had the UN, which somehow was able to immunize or protect Iraq's biggest assets, which were tied to its oil industry. And then you also had this big player, this big influential player in the form of the US actively lobbying for the best possible terms for Iraq. And I should just mention also, you had one of the best debt restructuring lawyers around and also a previous All Thoughts guest, um, Lee Bukhite over at Cleary Gottlieb, or formerly of Cleary Gottlieb, representing Iraq. So all these great uh, things going for Iraq when it comes to this debt restructuring. So is it just an, an isolated incident of, of one of these things going right for once?
2: I think it's an isolated incident in the sense that at the Paris Club, they had the political backing of a coalition, which were all on the same side, and mostly represented the big creditors. They had the UN resolution, which meant that it was really hard for the creditors to do anything. There were no remedies to actually enforce the debt, and this was not only the sovereign debt, but... Iraq, during the sanctions period, had sort of the the polity of Iraq had morphed into everything being under the state. So it wasn't just the state liabilities that were being restructured. It was also the quasi-bank, the quasi-governmental organizations, so, such as the big banks. And The UN revolu- resolution really stopped anyone from trying to enforce their creditor rights, which meant that a lot of people didn't engage. So whereas in Argentina, you have hedge funds like Elliott coming in, seeing that we can make a good argument that we should be paid more than the restructuring offer. Because there were no remedies for creditors to actually force Iraq to pay, they didn't didn't really engage, which meant that it is unique in the sense that it was very easy to actually get everyone to pay. So after the... Paris club negotiations were conducted the commercial restructuring was a little bit easier in the sense that there was a comparability of treatment clause in the Paris club meaning that no other creditors could get a better deal which meant that you could go out to everyone and say if you are owed money this is the best deal that you're going to get and if you don't take it you can try and sue us but there is a immunization agreement at the UN, which means that you're probably going to have to wait 15 years to have a chance. And by that time, who knows? And it would cost a lot of lawyers and it would cost a lot of waiting, whereas we can give you 10% on your notional and then also pay accrued interest on any loans, which is not insubstantial. So they ended up paying LIBOR plus 75 basis points from the time of the sanctions in the 1990s, which, you know, accrues at a a pace, they got everyone to agree. Really, 96% of all creditors took the deal, and there were no one who really stood out and tried to say, we don't want it, we're gonna sue, we're not gonna engage. The people who were really unhappy were, on the other hand, people who thought that this is a missed opportunity in the sense that we could have done the odious debt discussion and actually try to use the political power behind this particular restructuring to say, you know what, we are going to try and enshrine it in international law, and it is not moral that they are paid at all, because this was not money that really was owed in good faith.
1: So talk about that. What would have been in, say, some alternate history— what might have been the ramifications, you mentioned the Pandora's box, if they had enshrined this con- uh, concept that some debt is inherently odious and it's not necessarily moral to pay it back? Had that uh, concept put, been put into application with the Iraqi debt restructuring, what might that have uh, meant uh, subsequently for uh, subsequent uh, restructurings?
2: I think it really would have been Pandora's box in the sense that we don't know. but there were fairly serious discussions to the top of the U.S. government about actually starting to do this. So if you go back at the time, the think tank and policy world, uh, among them academics, there is a big discussion about actually declaring the debt odious, and there are overtures in that direction. And it would have meant that other people lending money to debt around the world would have had to think twice and not just say, oh, you know what, the idea of sovereign debt is that the intergenerational loans of one government is honored by the next government, which is really one of the main foundations in uh, international finance at the time. You would have had to step back and say, okay, so if you lend money to uh, a despot or a dictator, the international law, uh, is. there might be an argument that you should not get your money back. Obviously, there are lots of people with interest in one way or the other. So, you know, uh, it's hard for me to say what would actually happen. But I think it could have been one of the few instances of which you would have had a chance because the powers that be were so uniformly behind Iraq and getting proper debt relief at the time they were able to create a new approach at the Paris Club the EBN approach which was a way to not take the standard template of debt restructuring but actually say for highly indebted low income uh, countries we have uh, we can do a special way of actually looking at what do they need you had US who ended up writing off all of the debts so they wrote off everything after the restructuring and that was the UN resolution. So all of it comes together to say this was a very this was a unique restructuring in that the creditors were just immensely successful in actually writing it off and uh, ending with a with a clean slate but under the terms of the old sovereign debt restructuring. So it, it was successful if we say, okay, compared to every other restructuring that's been in the last hundred years and uh, It went very smoothly. Everyone agreed. No one sued. But it could have been more. It could have been a way to actually create a new restructuring mechanism or a bankruptcy court to settle these things going forward. And it was a unique opportunity in that sense.
0: Is it weird that, I mean, a lot of this debt, as your paper points out, was incurred in the 1980s when Iraq was fighting against Iran with the support of a lot of its creditors who were actually giving it money in order to do this and then i guess 20 years later those same creditors are suddenly talking about that debt as odious debt is it weird to see that sort of progression in the way people were thinking about that money
2: i think it's a little bit like geopolitics you know people used to be your enemies they're now your friends and then they can become enemies and a lot of the money was really thrown after Iraq because there was plenty to go around. And the whole idea about supporting satellite states or allies to do proxy wars in the Middle East was just fairly normal. And, I mean, to an extent, many of the issues that we have here that are you know, shown, especially in the early years, are still with us. So, you know, Iran and Iraq are in the news today, a lot of the issues were not really resolved in any way. The old debt was restructured into new debt, but the underlying political and religious and power struggles really just continue. So in that sense, probably not.
1: So one of the questions that always arises when you have a sovereign debt restructuring, and particularly in more contentious ones where you have some creditor trying to get money, is like, well, in the end, like, how do you really get a government to pay money? They're a sovereign country. They can do whatever they want. International law is sort of a weak, nebulous concept at best. In, in many cases, though, like say what we've seen with Argentina is that the money is raised initially or the bonds are sold through major financial centers, so maybe through New York or through London. It doesn't sound like that was the case in uh in Iraq where uh where a lot of this debt was just incurred bilaterally through different states or the CIA or whoever but talk to us about the difference in restructuring when uh the if the debt was incurred through some uh, major financial center with a sort of more robust legal framework for settling this stuff.
2: Yeah, so one of the one of the main or the main difference between owing money to a sovereign versus to a corporation is that If you owe money to a corporation or a household, there is a bankruptcy court. You can take them to court. You have remedies. You know there is a a way to actually get the money, whereas sovereign states, it doesn't really work like that. In the last 200 years, or really before that, the idea that you send in the gunboats was that you sometimes just had to force people to pay, and there really isn't a way to force sovereigns to pay, or at least historically, there hasn't been. So why do sovereigns pay interest on debt? Well, it really comes down to mainly one of two things. One is reputation. And by reputation, I mean it's nice to be able to smooth your consumption or borrow money if you need to buy something. And if you don't pay your your creditors, well, the chance that they're going to lend you money next time is probably a lot smaller. So countries just do it out of self-interest because it's a lot easier to pay the interest on your debt knowing that you can go to the market again. So this is sort of the reputational idea. Secondary sanctions, so a historical uh, analogy would be that you're put in debtor prison, but you could also just be forced. So in the 1900s, uh, it was just a matter of raw power often, where one country forced another one to pay. All this really changed in the last, shall we say, 30, 40 years with the rise of financial centers. So. In New York, in Hong Kong, in London, most money flows through one way or the other. So if all of a sudden the laws of London or English law or New York law suggest that if your money touches New York, you have to abide by certain rules, which means that you can have cases like Argentina where even though none of the creditors or the debtor were really in New York, the Judge in the case sat in New York and could really say, Yes, but all money flows through here at some point, and I'm going to slab motions on it if it does, which means that the creditors do have certain remedies to all of a sudden force countries to pay. Obviously, they were circumvented in Iraq, which makes this unique compared to some of the more different cases that we have and makes it maybe not a good template, but at least good inspiration for some of the cases that we will see, I think, going forward shortly. So two obvious countries that have issues sort of similar is one, Venezuela, which is obviously insolvent and has lots of assets abroad, oil assets, both in the U.S. direct with their oil company, but also just oil assets abroad. And they're going to have to find a way to uh, restructure their debt and make sure that they don't end up having the same issues. The other one is Lebanon, which has a lot of debt, which is both foreign and domestic, and they have a dollar peg currency. I know you had Paul McNamara on to talk about Lebanon a couple of uh, weeks, a month ago, suggesting all the various issues, and they, they come from the same idea that you need to find a way to make sure that the restructuring actually works, and you don't get entangled in all the legal issues that can that can come afterwards.
0: So in the process of doing your research did you come across any like interesting um instances or anecdotes about the commercial creditors
2: One of the things is that the uh, lawyers looked at precedents of how do you actually find out who's owed money on the commercial side so i found out that the commercial creditors range from the big banks and there were many european banks owed money like we talked about before but also just lots of trade credits, and people owed money for small things like uh, export delivered just before the sanctions. And they did struggle about how to actually do it. So uh, one of the things that they've been uh, talking about was how not to do it. So one one story is that in 1975, Nigeria ordered 16 million tons of cement to arrive uh, within a sh- within a year for their harbor or for their uh, to to pluck a shortage they hadn't really made the calculation correctly so it was far in excess of what they actually uh, needed to uh, needed to receive the result was a run up in trade debt that needed to be settled and the government took out a newspaper ad asking anyone owed money to contact them now obviously a lot of people contacted them And Nigeria was inundated with claims, and it really entangled the debt, uh, it really was a debt reconciliation nightmare, and it ended up settling only one-third of the claims. So, in the commercial settlement or uh, reconciliation and uh, part of the restructuring, they set out some very formal rules of how could you actually uh, deliver a claim to make sure that you don't end up with just taking ads out in newspapers, hoping that anyone could just say, hey, I have owed money.
0: I love that. It's uh, it's sort of the complete opposite uh, to the normal situation to have requests for money actually flowing into Nigeria rather than out of it.
2: I know. I wonder if that's the original idea for the Nigerian princess.
0: (laughs) Nigerian princess, yeah. Okay, well, so... A really fascinating saga of debt restructuring and one that could hold clues as to the future paths of two emerging markets uh, that are possibly on the brink of default. Simon Hendrickson, thank you so much for coming on.
2: Thank you for having me. Pleasure.
1: Thanks, Simon. That was great.
0: So Joe, I really enjoyed that conversation. Uh, it brings together, of course, a lot of the themes that we've discussed on previous AllBots episodes, but it seems especially relevant in the context of what's going on in Venezuela, but also Lebanon. So it's nice to think about the Iraq example, whether or not it could be a blueprint for future restructurings or whether or not it was really an isolated special case.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are certainly aspects of it that feel extremely isolated. The fact that so much of the debt was sort of to official uh, entities like other governments that didn't have particularly uh, much reason to extract a high price—you have to figure it'd be difficult. We know there's a lot of uh, debt held in countries like Venezuela and uh, Lebanon, where you know there's like they're held by a money manager that has to. Uh, earned some return or has clients, Uh, but nonetheless, sort of a fascinating look at just the sort of uh, unusual circumstances. And we never really talk about uh, the Iraq restructuring at all, which I guess is kind of the point of Simon having done the research.
0: Yeah, exactly. Do you think that odious debt is ever going to get enshrined as a legal concept?
1: I mean, the problem is... There's inherently going to be an element of subjectivity, right? How much yeah. is the leader really uh, representing the will of the people? How much was it for the benefit of the people? The expenditure, the debt that was incurred. It obviously makes a certain amount of moral or logical sense that, yeah, why should people who are born today have to or you know, deal with the debts incurred by a past dictator? But it seems so hard to imagine there will ever be a point when people say, okay, Yeah, you get to write this off because of the Pandora's box that uh, Simon described. What do you think?
0: Um, What do I think? Uh, I think, well, this is sort of what I was getting with that question about how come all the debt incurred in the 1980s was okay as long as Iraq was seen as beneficial to the international community in the sense that it was fighting against Iranian hegemony. But then suddenly after it invaded Kuwait and it became very, very clear that Saddam Hussein was a bad guy, suddenly that same money can be considered possibly odious. So you sort of have this fluidity of debt, right? Like debt can exist for many, many decades And in that period of time, the reasons it exists can change and they can switch from possibly moral to possibly immoral. It does seem like it must be one of the most complicated concepts in all of international finance. The idea of actually defining odious debt and actually trying to put it into law, I can't even imagine.
1: Yeah, and I think that's what makes uh, even current debt restructurings so interesting to watch. So set aside the moral question, they're just so complicated because the legal frameworks are unclear. The moral questions about extracting real resources from an economy that's obviously distressed in the first place because otherwise it probably wouldn't be in this situation. Uh, very interesting. Uh, I think that is partly why you know the, these will always be inherently complicated.
0: Yeah. But again, we might actually have a chance, I guess, to revisit the odious debt concept um, when, uh, well, in the context of Venezuela. So that'll be an interesting one to watch.
1: Absolutely. Uh,
0: Should we leave it there? Let's leave it there. Cool. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway.
1: And I'm Jill Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at the Stalwart. And be sure to follow our guest on Twitter, Simon Henriksen. His handle is at Simon H underscore DK. And be sure to follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M Carlson. Follow Francesca Levy, the Bloomberg Head of Podcasts, at Francesca Today. And check out the whole family of Bloomberg podcasts on Twitter under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening.